Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for December 23rd, 2022. I'm Joy Claire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism professor Howard French. He has been awarded 2022's Museum of African History Stone Book Award and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for his latest book, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War, published by LiveWrite. Before returning to academia, Howard French was a New York Times foreign correspondent in West and Central Africa, as well as the Times Bureau Chief in the Caribbean and Central America, before becoming their Tokyo Bureau Chief and then their Bureau Chief in Shanghai, China. In addition to the New York Times, he has contributed to the New York Review of Books, The Atlantic, The Guardian Long Reads, and Foreign Policy. His earlier books include a Continent for the Taking, The Tragedy and Hope of Africa, China's Second Continent, How a Million Migrants Are Building a New Empire in Africa, and Everything Under the Heavens, How the Past Helps Shape China's Push for Global Power. From his decades of traveling and researching at the sources of events, Howard French has written a book that upends the version of history typically understood by Western historians and educators. Born in Blackness challenges the explanations for the emergence of the modern world that postulates that the ethics and temperament that some associate with Judeo-Christian beliefs, or the development and spread of the scientific method, or more more chauvinistically still, with Europeans' off-professed belief in their unique ingenuity and inventiveness. Ideas like these have become associated in the popular imagination with the Protestant Reformation and with the strong work ethic, individualism, and entrepreneurial drive that supposedly flow from it in places like England and Holland, and that that created our modern world. But in a time when statues of people who were long perceived to be heroes of imperial and economic orders that were constructed on the basis of the violent exploitation of people extracted from Africa have been toppled in the U.S., U.K., the Netherlands, and elsewhere, he writes, quote, The most important side of forgetting has been in the minds of people in the rich world. For these gestures to have deeper and more lasting meaning, and even even bigger and more challenging task remains for us. It requires of us that we transform the way we understand the history of the last six centuries, and specifically of Africa's central, yet largely invisible, role in making nearly everything that is familiar to us possible. End of the quote. As school boards and universities are attacked for even considering a revisioning of history towards greater accuracy, Howard French's work does much to inform and advance our understanding of our current conflicts and challenges. We spoke with Howard French on December 20, 2022, via Skype, overcoming numerous technical difficulties. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Professor Howard French. Thank you for joining us today, and congratulations for receiving both the Museum of African American History Stone Book Award, as well as the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for your book, 
Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. Thank you, Joy. It's really wonderful to be with you. Your book proposes a revamping of the way most of us were educated about how the modern world came to be. For one thing, it overturns the notion that the so-called Age of Discovery was prompted by European desire to discover a sea route to India to obtain spices, and that a brilliant but ridiculed for his crazy notion that the world was round sailor, Christopher Columbus, talked Queen Isabella of Spain into sponsoring his westward voyage into the Atlantic to get to India. Your research shows quite a different history. Share with our listeners the state of the world in the century before his legendary voyage. Where were the more advanced and less advanced societies located, the wealthier and the poorer? Your summary before the question actually sets this up very nicely. So first of all, thank you. The standard history that we most of us have been taught goes something like this, that in the late 15th century, in Iberia, meaning the southern, southwesternmost part of Europe, Spain and Portugal, there arose an obsession with reaching the east, meaning in the first instance India, but eventually China. And that this was about overcoming the blockade that the Ottomans had created to east-west trade because a Muslim power essentially controlled what we now call Near Asia or the Middle East. And Africa in this narrative, this very standardized narrative that we're all exposed to, to one degree or another, is simply presented if it is presented. So sometimes it's not presented at all. And if it's presented, it's presented as an obstacle, a vast geographical space. And the challenge to Europe was how to get around it, because it was inert. It was historically without interest. It was culturally without interest. It had no civilization and had no features worthy of, of our attention. And so this leads to your question about the prior century, which is entirely appropriate to resetting our understanding of this history, because in the prior century, what we see is that the Iberians, and in particular Portugal, was then a young kingdom uh, under the, a dynasty called the Avis, and by the standards of even of the day, an extraordinarily poor place. So the Avis had only a few products, the kingdom by which it could live or earn income, and these were dried fish, salt, and cork the cork that we use to, to bottle wine, and little else, because Portugal is cut off from exposure to the Mediterranean, which is the sort of boulevard by which Southern Europe traded with the rest of the world. It had a special incentive to try to venture out into the Atlantic Ocean. Now, this young and very poor kingdom called the Avis was coveted by the Spanish. I'm calling for shorthand, I'm, I'm speaking of the Spanish, but of course, the space that we call Spain today was not called Spain then. It was still composed of a variety of smaller kingdoms that only gradually over time came together. And they had, as their goal, reincorporating breakaway Portugal under their remit. Portugal, actually all of the Southern Europeans in the 14th century, had received word from Africa of the existence of extraordinary stores of wealth in the region of Africa that we call the Sahel, which is a broad belt that uh, runs east to west, just south of the Sahara Desert. And they received news of this wealth from the Sahel by way of an extraordinary pilgrimage made by a king or emperor of the Mali Empire, the most important empire in that part of the world of the day. 
I have to go back even before I tell you about this pilgrimage by the king or emperor of the Mali Empire, a man named Mansa Musa, I have to mention his predecessor. And so his predecessor, a man named Abu Bakr II, opens the 14th century, meaning the very beginning of the 1300s, with a venture to cross the Atlantic for purposes of exploration and trade. Now, most of us have never heard of this. We, as you mentioned, uh, Columbus in your opening question. And for most of us, Columbus is the beginning uh, of the history of transoceanic voyaging, uh, certainly by Europeans. But for most of us, that's all. That's what we assume got things going for everybody. We have very good reason to believe that the Malians, this empire that existed in the Sahel under Abu Bakr II, in the opening years of the 1300s, tried to cross the Atlantic with vast stores of gold aboard boats of theirs. And I'm using the word boat advisedly because these were not tall-masted ships. West Africans did not use tall-masted ships in this era. These were boats. A convoy of boats tried to cross the Atlantic, and most of them never returned. The leader of that expedition returns, reports to the king that they met with disaster, that most of the boats were lost, and the king, Abu Bakr II, then orders up a second and even larger expedition, which he personally takes command of. And in around the year 1308 or so, he tries to cross the Atlantic himself at the head of this expedition and never is seen again. Now, we know of this because Abu Bakr II's eventual successor, the man who I named previously, Mansa Musa, in the year 1324, makes a pilgrimage to Mecca and along the way stops in Cairo. 3,500 miles away from the capital of the Mali Empire, crosses the Sahara Desert with an enormous cortege of soldiers, diplomats, scribes, orders, people of the court, etc., etc., carrying 18 tons of gold, pure gold, which he distributed or which his party distributed in acts of religious and other kinds of patronage in Cairo and elsewhere along the way. And this enormous amount of wealth distributed in a compressed period of time something that's never actually happened at any other moment in history, something on this scale, depresses the price of gold throughout the Mediterranean world and eventually into Europe for about a decade. And so this sends the legend, and legend suggests fiction. This is not fiction. This is well recorded. And in fact, we know of Abu Bakr II's predecessor's attempt to cross the Atlantic because Mansa Musa gives an audience to the governor of Cairo under the Mamluk dynasty in 1325, in which he is asked about the lineage of his ruling house, and he tells the story of his predecessor, Abu Bakr II. And so this is a written contemporaneous record we have of all of these facts. Anyway, to skip forward just a little bit, word of this enormous wealth and this enormous patronage enters into Europe, and it activates the imaginations, most of all, of the Portuguese, for the reasons I've already explained. Portugal was desperate, it was young, it was fragile, and it was poor, and it didn't have a window onto the Mediterranean. And so this helps launch, essentially, a century-long quest by the Portuguese to discover the sources of wealth in West Africa that could have made such feats of uh, largesse possible. And the main patron or director of this quest is a man we, many of us will have heard of before, Prince Henry the Navigator, he was called, who becomes the royal sponsor of beginning in the, in the 1420s and 30s, begins sponsoring ventures of exploration, not to Asia, but down the coast of West Africa, looking for the source of this wealth. And this culminates in 1471 
not with the discovery of gold where the Portuguese thought they might find it in Mali, which of course is an inland empire, but in the country or in the land that is occupied by the country we know of today as Ghana. The Portuguese arrived in 1471. By the way, Henry the Navigator's already dead, but the quest continued after him. Portuguese arrive in Ghana in 1471, and even ordinary people, ordinary villagers, are walking around wearing abundant amounts of gold jewelry on them in Ghana in 1471 which is a kind of a proof of concept for the Portuguese. They know they've arrived and they begin to establish trade with small with a small kingdom there and eventually negotiate the creation of a gigantic fort which I've visited and which photographs of which are in my book and this establishes a period of sustained and history changing contact between Europe and sub-Saharan Africa that I argue is more important than even the much more famous trade that was established a little less than a century later with East Asia. We are speaking with Howard French about his book, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. In our modern ability to travel as freely as we do, it's difficult to understand the barriers that Europeans at that time had to face. Why did it take so long to just go like the first third of West Africa? What were the impediments? The Europeans in this era, uh, we have to understand there's a kind of perspective that is almost unavoidable to all of us today. We take the wealth and the prowess of Europe as permanent facts of history. We project backwards in a kind of teleology in which we expect that since the West has been strong or preeminent for all of our lives, anyone who's listening to this and also to their parents' lives and to their grandparents' lives and so forth, then there must have always been a West and that the West must have always been preeminent. And we kind of make these gigantic leaps back into history where we become the descendants of the Greeks and the Greeks were preeminent, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this is really a highly distorted and false way of understanding history. In the Middle Ages, the West actually didn't exist as a coherent thing, first of all. I make the argument that the West was created, in fact, if we understand the West in the modern sense, through contact with Africa. Why do I say that? I say that because our contemporary West, as we use the term, is not simply Europe, but it's a condominium between Europe and the New World. And it is the wealth of the New World whose exploitation was made possible through slavery on a gigantic scale, which powers the creation of this condominium and the ascendance of the various components Components of this condominium, including eventually the United States. Anyway, back to your question, the Europeans lagged for a long string of centuries in most important categories of wealth, power, knowledge, etc. In this middle period of history between the glorious civilization of the Greeks that we fantasize about and our more recent wealth and preeminence that, that we all are familiar with and take for granted, right? China, India, the Arab world, and various other parts of the world uh, surpassed Europe in most measurable senses for a very long stretch of time. So the, why did it take so long to get down the coast of Africa? If you look at a map of Europe, you can you immediately come to realize that Europe is practically glued together with Africa. Right off the tip of Spain, there is Morocco, right? Um, there's no great distance to overcome here. So why did it take so long to get down the coast of West Africa? It is a fantastic question to let us understand, in fact, how tenuous the West's grasp was of technology and of science in this period. First of all, and I think many of us will have heard this already, there was a great deal of superstition 
although in the Muslim world, it had been known for quite some time that the world was round and this had been proven through observation and mathematics. And indeed, this was true, although not universally understood in the time of the Greek philosophers and mathematicians had also proven this in Europe in these intermediate ages. The world was imagined to be flat. And all sorts of superstitious notions existed around this idea that you'd fall off the edge if you navigated too far, that there were monsters at sea, that et cetera, et cetera, that it was simply impossible to try to sail at great distances from the shores of the continent out into the Atlantic. The second reason had to do with maritime technology. The Europeans lacked advanced seagoing vessels and a knowledge of how to navigate in the oceans to the southwest of the continent. And the reason why the Southwest is pertinent to this discussion is because the ocean currents become very complicated and switch directions at a certain latitude, specifically around the Canary Islands. And the Europeans didn't really understand that. They understood how to get out to sea if they could overcome the fear and superstition, but not how, because of the ocean currents, how to get back home. Uh, and so this inhibited their outward journeys until they figured out by copying the Arabs how to build new classes of vessels and how to do what we call tacking, which is to navigate by way of vast triangles, where it's counterintuitive. You sometimes are going in the opposite direction of your goal in order to cut back inwards toward your goal and to gain a lot of time. So the Europeans had spent a very long time figuring all of these things out and overcoming their fears. And this is essentially the time span that we're talking about in the life of Henry the Navigator, and his immediate successors, where they were learning on the fly, piecing things together as they figured out how to get down the coast of Africa to discover the most important source of wealth in the world, in the Mali Empire. Throughout your, your book, islands take a large place in the way things happen, which we won't go into, but that was an eye-opener for me. I always kind of thought of islands as eh, not that consequential, but it turns out they're extremely consequential in this history. You mentioned before about they finally get down the coast of Africa and they set up a fort. Explain about that. Elmina is the name of the fort that's built along the coast of what is present-day Ghana, which after the 1471 discovery of gold there by the Portuguese, the culmination of this long quest to discover wealth, not in Asia, but in Africa. And a decade later, after the complicated negotiations, the local kingdom had agreed to allow the Portuguese to build this fort. Portuguese build this majestic fort, which still exists there, which most people imagine at this point, one of our mysterious technical difficulties occurred when Howard French's voice disappeared mid-sentence. Persevering, we were able to reestablish our connection. You were explaining about Elmina, and this might be a good opportunity to talk about, contrary to our 19th century impression of the sovereignty of Africans in their own places, that the Portuguese were coming as foreigners on ships into lands that are already well-established with cultures and hierarchies and states and all that kind of stuff. And through Hollywood and everything else, we have the image of people in grass skirts. And I'd like to pick up, kind of recover from our disconnection, but... Um so after the Portuguese eventually acquired, obtained the permission from the local kingdom, and this was not a, a giant or very important in terms of military strength or geography kingdom along the coast of Ghana, 
The Portuguese nonetheless had to negotiate with them, and they finally get the permission to build the fort over some local objection. They established the fort, and the scale of the gold trade that the Portuguese were then able to establish in very little time totally changes the trajectory of Portugal in terms of its history. We've talked about how poor and fragile Portugal was as a kingdom, but in the space of just three years, Portugal is getting a third of its entire royal income from trade with this fort in today's Ghana. It's such a dramatic thing in terms of the political and economic life of Portugal that they named their treasury, which was located in the castle of the king. By the way, I was there just a month ago. I visited this site for the first time a month ago during a visit to Portugal. It still exists. They named it their treasury, the House of Africa. They actually used the word Guinea, which was what the word, the generic word that the Portuguese used for Africa. But they called their treasury in this period the House of of Guinea, meaning the House of Africa, because Africa was the center of their wealth. And eventually, the British, centuries later, will name their pound the Guinea. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Spain decides, as you mentioned, they're in a rivalry with Portugal already, and they enter the picture here. I learned from your book that before he had his little talk with Isabella of Spain, Columbus was actually working with the Portuguese. Very briefly, talk about that. Columbus was what you might think of using today's terminology, a mercenary or a conquistador for hire. He traveled all over Europe seeking support for his idea of trying to find some way to prove the concept of the round earth and to reach Asia in his mind, meaning first Japan and then China by traveling west across the Atlantic. And he basically gets rejected and in sometimes in some cases laughed out of the court of various kingdoms and so he tried with portugal he tried with spain once was refused there are reasons to believe he tried even with england he gets refused it's only when portugal discovers these vast quantities of gold and establishes this lucrative trade with elmina that the spanish decide to take columbus seriously and they do so because of a kind of archaic sense of uh, geology. The Spanish say, well, if the Portuguese discovered gold in a tropical area near the equator in Africa, this must mean that there's gold along that band of the tropics throughout the world. And so Columbus is talking about finding way to Japan. Let's humor him. Great if he can make his way to Asia. But that's not really what concerns us. Let's finance this guy. After all, it's only three ships. Give him three ships. Send him out. Order him to t give us reports about gold wherever he shall find it. And then hopefully, as he ventures into the tropics, we'll discover gold like the Portuguese does. This is the start of the story of Columbus in terms of his great discoveries. And it all has to do with Spanish envy of Portugal in Africa. Okay, so gold is the start of this. But in the meantime, in 1393, Castile, in what we consider Spain, goes and sets up the first European colony in the Atlantic in the Canary Islands. And there were Stone Age people living there, and they resisted, and they were subjected to, to genocide, to very briefly summarize that. And then there was uh, Madeira in 1424. And that's important because that was the first Atlantic sugar mill. And was that Spain or Portugal? I've lost 
track. Madeira is Portugal. Okay, so here again we have this rivalry, and sugar became really the thing. We're going to skip over vast amounts of the information you have in your book, Howard French, but talk about the impact of this sugar mill and taking over places, in this case, islands. So the Canary Islands is where Columbus comes to understand how the ocean currents that I talked about earlier worked. The Canaries are located off the coast of West Africa, not far from land. It's as far as the Europeans are able to get up until that point in their history. Navigationally speaking, in the 15th century, Columbus establishes himself there. After a while, he marries a woman whose family has connections there, and it is there that he understands how the ocean currents work and how you might get across the Atlantic and still be able to come back. So that the Canaries are really important for that reason. And as you said, the Portuguese and the Spanish both vied for control over the Canaries, which are, is an archipelago and contains a, 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 a number of islands. And in the process, they wipe out the Guanches, who are the native peoples of that area, who are related to, to North Africans in terms of their genealogy. And this is, I argue, the first first modern genocide. This is how the modern age begins, with the genocide of the people, the native peoples of the Canary Islands. The Madeira Island, further to the north, is historically important because this is where the two-step, as I would call it, of the start of modern history takes its second leap. The first step is gold in West Africa. The second step is the invention of an entirely new system of wealth creation through plantation agriculture on a large scale using chattel slavery, which means a racially based slavery where human beings are reduced to the state of cattle, in effect, beasts of burden in which slavery is an inheritable trait. On a racial basis, people who have been targeted for slavery will be slaves down the generations, on and on forever. And so the, the beginnings of this experiment are in Madeira, where Portuguese are planting sugar for the first time in history. Sugar has slowly migrated over a thousand years from, from probably from New Guinea at the start all the way. Now it makes its way across the, the Mediterranean and it's into the Atlantic at Madeira. And the, the Portuguese discover, Prince Henry the Navigator himself owns a mill there, discovers that you know, making sugar is like mining gold, that sugar is a rare commodity in Europe and you can make enormous profits from it. And so after the discovery of gold in Ghana, the Portuguese also acting on this kind of perverse notion of geology are beginning to explore elsewhere in the tropics, thinking gold is expresses itself in the tropics, can be found along the equator. And they discover an island, another island, a place called Sao Tome, off the coast of Central Africa that is uninhabited at the time. And they experiment with sugar there after having already learned how to grow sugar in Madeira. And it's at Sao Tome that sugar in the early 1500s, this model of plantation agriculture using chattel slavery explodes and produces extraordinary amounts of wealth. And then by accident, the tacking this navigational technique at sea of using these vast triangles by way of getting down the coast of Africa that way, the Portuguese accidentally bump into, so to speak, Brazil. And so now they have this incredibly large territory at the same sort of latitude with the same sort of climate and, and, and soils in Brazil. And the techniques of the plantation agriculture and chattel slavery are then very quickly transported across the Atlantic and expanded at vast scale. And this is 
the beginning of the creation of the West, where Europe harnesses the wealth of Africans and of the territories of the New World on an unimaginable level. And this propels changes in European society in terms of wealth, in terms of power, in terms of diet, eventually in terms of the emergence of democracy for reasons we can discuss later on. It might seem surprising to hear that, but it's true. And it's all based on, it all proceeds from the series of islands that you asked me in the, in the question initially that the Europeans, the Spanish first and then the Portuguese begin to exploit. Okay, so there's slavery and then there's slavery. Slavery's mentioned in the Bible. It's been around for thousands of years. But this form of slavery was very different from what had been experienced before. For one thing, it was racialized. Talk very briefly about what slavery had been thought of in Africa, in Atlantic Africa, before the period we're talking about. Slavery has existed, as you say, pretty much everywhere at one point or another throughout history. Slavery existed in Europe at the time, in fact, among Europeans at the time of the initiation of of the Atlantic slave trade involving Africa. The difference about with slavery in Africa among Africans at the time was that in Africa, by and large, the general pattern was a series of conquests of neighbors, one neighbor by another, for the purpose of not territorial aggrandizement, but for the purpose of absorbing captive people into the local, into the victorious society. So it was aggrandizement of population that was the strategy. And because that was the strategy, it, it made no sense to permanently relegate the captive people to a secondary status in the society. They were very, in, uh, quite the contrary, quickly assimilated. And very often, a generation or two after somebody's family had been enslaved, or someone's ancestor had been enslaved, the descendants could rise to the station of chief, king, or even emperor of an empire. There are numerous cases in African history of this happening. So slavery had none of the racial caste to it. It had none of the transgenerational nature to it. And of course, because Africans were not practicing plantation agriculture, it had nothing to do with the kind of regimented labor for the production of agricultural commodities on a large scale, which is the basis of chattel slavery in the New World. Both the Spanish and the Portuguese are setting up these plantations, and they're using a form of slavery that just doesn't make sense to modern imaginations in terms of the economics of it. They were literally working people to death. However, it did make sense economically to them. And of course, we won't get into the whole religious aspect of they're Christians, so they're a different breed of people. But the point is, it's unlikely that the Africans who participated in trading people for the trade goods that the Europeans were bringing them understood what they were subjecting the people they were selling as slaves Yes, because of the different natures of slavery as practiced in these two large civilizational groups that we've just been speaking of in Europe on the one hand and Africa on the other hand, I mean, totally different concepts of slavery. The Africans, I'm not trying to prettify this. I wouldn't want to have been sold into slavery under any circumstances at any point in time. But the Africans who were selling slaves to the Europeans in exchange for essentially prestige goods and sometimes weapons had no concept, had no knowledge, had no way of knowing even what sort of fate was reserved for these people. Chattel slavery was beyond their imagination. They didn't practice it. They'd never seen it. They'd never encountered it. And 
They didn't know about plantations either. They speculated in all sorts of fantastic ways. Why are the Europeans so interested in buying human beings from us? Of course, they had sold human beings to eat. Africans had traded human beings among themselves from time immemorial. But as we have said already, for different purposes. So why are the Europeans doing this? The Africans wondered. Well, do they melt their bodies down to create candle wax? These are literal things that were imagined. Is this how cheese is made? Is this for some kind of religious sacrifice? They had no notion of the purposes to which Europeans were putting these people that they were so avid about buying from Africans. In terms of the economics of slavery, I just want to take slight objection to something you said. It made total sense in the day to work slaves to death in the chattel slavery system of the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries from the perspective of the Europeans. With the limited amount of medical knowledge available at that time among Europeans, trying to husband so to speak, the health and the life of the captive people who are being brutally worked on plantations would have been much more expensive than simply sourcing new human beings from across the Atlantic once the ocean current systems and once the fleets had been developed to for this sort of human trade, then it would have been just to transport new replacements. And so it became a kind of feature, a rational feature of business. If you see it in a very dry way that puts aside the morality of this, it was a rational feature of business to just a cost of operation that you work a slave on average to death between five and seven years in a sugar growing environment and you just keep resupplying them from West and Central Africa all along. You call this a war on blackness, and I'm going to summarize a few things. These are all estimates, but about 12 million Africans were brought to the Americas. We're talking North and South America. Six million were killed resisting enslavement in their homelands. Five to 40 percent died in the chain coffles on the journey to the coast or in the barracoons, the holding pens. About 10 percent died on the voyage, and from an African population of about 100 million in the whole continent in the mid-19th century, we can get a sense of how this depleted the population. And that's not even counting the slaves who were sent up to Northeast Africa and beyond. That's just the Atlantic slave trade. And this is an important feature because we've had a recent head of state who referred to countries in very derogatory terms, which I won't quote here. But talk about the impact on Africa of this theft, looting of their youngest and healthiest people. The youngest and healthiest piece, which is what you saved for last year in a very nice summary of the kind of demographic arguments of my book, is really the key, right? So the Europeans in sourcing to, to state it in a prettified way, business term, modern business term sort of way, in sourcing human beings from Africa, were looking for people in the primes of their economically productive and reproductively productive lives. In other words, young men and women, healthy young men and women. And so you take the numbers that you summarized there from a base population, say, of 100 million people in the 18th century, and you say, okay, all of these numbers of people taken away from this continent, people taken away in the primes of their lives, and this and only this really begins to allow you to imagine the kind of economic and political impact that this might have had on the African continent at the very time, I should say, when the nation state 
in Europe was in full blossom. And so this is when Europe is becoming the powerful, coherent, productive, creative, and wealthy place that we know it to have become, right? At that very time, Africa is being drained of its fruit, humanly speaking, right? It's most productive peoples. And I argue in the book, and I believe firmly, that this has a cost. This had a cost for Africa, which is still being paid today. There's a lot of attention. In fact, I've written quite a bit myself about contemporary African demographics and how Africa is going to be the center of human growth population-wise for the remainder of this century, to an extent most of your listeners probably can't even begin to imagine, right? But I argue that this is actually, in fact, largely a catch-up effect. Africans are recovering still from this enormous depletion executed over a period of centuries via the transatlantic slave trade on the one hand and the other slave trade that you mentioned, which is not the focus of my book, but not because I don't think it was important, which was the Arab slave trade of the Indian Ocean and across Northeast Africa. And we have to remember that th we're talking four centuries, 400 years that this was going on. And that sounds abstract, but, but let's consider that the United States has only been a country, depending on when you start it, if you start it with the Treaty of Paris after the end of the Revolutionary War, we've only been a country for 238 years. And so we're talking four centuries that this was happening to humanity and creating the modern world, as you, you point out, Howard French. And in the modern world, the Caribbean islands are seen as like a vacation land, a playground, if you're lucky enough to be able to afford to get there. But during many of these centuries, it was not. Would you share with our listeners, we'll just stipulate the human misery of slavery and all that, but catch us up on the creation of the modern world from the islands of the Caribbean. Sao Tome is where the proof of concept takes place of plantation agriculture and, and chattel slavery, and it transits the Atlantic into Brazil, as I said. And the most famous stories that we have of that period of time, the 16th century, are the stories of the Spanish conquistadors who go into Mexico and Peru and Bolivia and they sack these empires of native peoples and they cart off in their galleons huge amounts of gold. In about 50 years, in a history that we pay little attention to, when plantation agriculture transits into Brazil, say from 1580 until 1630 or so, Portugal made more money by grinding out African lives in the pursuit of profit from sugar than Spain gained in sacking these empires and filling their galleons with gold and silver. So one of them is a story, the gold and silver we hear about, because it's these acts of conquest and superiority that somehow perversely can make some people feel good about themselves as Europeans or as Westerners. But it's this more quiet, this less dramatic in terms of a signal feats, grinding out of lives, that's really the key to the takeoff of the West. And England in 1630, then takes over the island of Barbados and copies the Portuguese and their sugar scheme of plantation agriculture and of chattel slavery there. And in the next half century or so, England makes more money out of killing Africans for the pursuit of sugar wealth than Spain gained in the conquest of the Aztecs and the Incas. France then gets in the game. And in Martinique and Guadeloupe, and then subsequently in Haiti, in a very compressed period of time, repeats this feat to the point where Haiti, it was called Saint-Domingue in this era, 
becomes the wealthiest colony in the history of humankind. It is still considered so today by most historians, all on the basis of plantation agriculture and chattel slavery. In 1791, the Africans who were the target of this exploitation in Haiti rose up, and over a long period of time, from 1791 until 1804, finally defeat a series of imperial powers, all of which were determined to control this wealth engine. First, they beat the French. The French are defeated. The Spanish try to take over that part of the island. They defeat the Spanish. Then the English come. They're the British by this point in their history. The British come, sending the largest fleet they ever sent across the ocean, and the Africans defeat the British. The British lose more soldiers fighting the Africans in Haiti than they lost in the American Revolution. The Haitians win. Then the French try again under Napoleon. And the Africans, I mean, this is truly one of the most extraordinary stories of the modern age. The Africans defeat Napoleon a second time, meaning they have defeated the three greatest empires in four bids to control that labor. And finally, the Europeans give up on trying to control what becomes Haiti. The Haitians create the founding document, I think, of the era of the Enlightenment, or at least the most complete document of the era of the Enlightenment, in which in their constitution from the start of their republic in 1804, they declare they outlaw not just slavery, but discrimination on the basis of race between human beings. The Africans victorious in these wars against these three great empires of the era outlaw racial discrimination of any kind from their founding document. What is the response of Europe? Europe and the United States, the young United States, tries to quarantine Haiti and cut them off for a period of decades. And France imposes indemnities, says, if you wish to trade with us, you must pay us back for the loss of the wealth that you incurred on us by defeating us in a revolution. This is a kind of prejudice put onto Haiti's future that lasts down to the future. But there's one final thing, and I know that I, I give lengthy answers here, and it's frustrating because there's so much history to cover. This is really the beginning of the American expansion into a continental power. Napoleon is defeated a second time by the Haitians. Haiti takes independence in the way I've described. And Napoleon, desperate, now sells the Louisiana Purchase to the Jefferson administration. And the United States overnight for the price of $15 million, doubles in size. And plantation agriculture, chattel slavery, move into the Mississippi Valley, and Africans are transported in a second great migration across that territorial expanse in the young United States into that Mississippi Valley and put to work growing cotton, which becomes the major engine of American expansion from the 1790s until the Civil War. And it really places the United States on the path to economic preeminence that we have enjoyed down to this moment. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned both those things because we are speaking on December 20th, 2022. And on this day in 1803, the Louisiana Purchase was completed as ownership of the territory and was formally transferred from France to the United States. So December 20th, 1803. 
On December 20th, 1860, South Carolina became the first state to secede from the Union as all 169 delegates to a special convention in Charleston voted in favor of separation. I didn't know that this coincidence of today's conversation existed with those facts of history, but that's beautiful. A couple of things. The epidemiology. We're much more familiar with the role that the diseases that Europeans brought to the North and South America continents and the indigenous people here had. But epidemiology also prohibited many Europeans from advancing into Africa or even very successfully into the Caribbean until basically the 19th century. Very briefly comment on those things, please. When the Portuguese begin to take over Brazil in the early years of the 1500s, the first thing they note, they didn't understand why, but the first thing they note is that the native populations of Brazil begin to die in huge numbers wherever the Portuguese encounter them. And so this is a matter of great chagrin to the Portuguese who imagined initially that they could enslave the native populations much as they had enslaved Africans in Sao Tome. But the native populations are withering wherever the the Portuguese set themselves up. This kind of epidemiological phenomenon happens in a reverse direction whenever the Europeans try to do anything on a large scale in Africa. The native populations of Brazil have no resistance to European diseases or to what are called sometimes old world diseases. But when the Europeans venture into West Africa, the Europeans have no resistance, no native resistance to tropical diseases and therefore malaria, yellow fever, and a host of other infectious diseases kill them in great numbers. And so This does not preserve Africans from the terrible demographic drain of the slave trade. It preserves Africans from any attempt by Europeans to conquer African territories or to occupy or colonize African territories really until late in the 19th century. For most of this period, it must be said, Europeans, even had there not been this epidemiological barrier, the Europeans did not really in the 17th century or the 18th century have the military capability of conquering vast areas in Africa, even if they did not face danger from diseases. There were lots of sophisticated kingdoms in Africa that were perfectly capable of holding their own against any expansionist intentions of Europeans. But just in case someone were tempted, disease was there and took its toll on Europeans in such a way as to make them understand immediately, with almost no exceptions, that it made no sense to try to control territory on a large scale in Africa. One thing that occurred to me, you very briefly talk about the Conference of Berlin, and I I really appreciate the way you do handle it, even however briefly. It made me remember gerrymandering. Mm Mm-hmm. Is there any, maybe not equivalency, but were they, I mean, gerrymandering's very conscious to try to divide and conquer. And clearly the results of the Berlin Conference did that. But to what extent did they do that consciously, do you think? I don't think that was a major feature of what was going on. I don't think that uh, by that time, you know, the Europeans had invented the Gatling gun and For the first time in their history, they had the technological means of prevailing with assurance over Africans. Most of your listeners, I think you are aware of this and the kinds of questions you ask. And the thing that you said about grass skirts and the like. Most of your listeners will imagine that Europeans always were superior to Africans in any meaningful way, right? Well, that's really not true. And 
as I tried to answer late in the conversation, Europeans didn't really have the means to impose themselves until quite recently. This doesn't happen until the mid-1850s, and especially with the invention of the Gatling gun and then other advanced weaponry, from uh, our modern artillery to automatic guns of other kinds. And so by the time of the Berlin Conference, the Europeans, for the first time, they have no doubt that wherever they go, they can wipe out the Africans. And so I don't think they have placed a priority in their jockeying for territory during the Berlin Conference on any notion of dividing the Africans for the purpose of better controlling them. They already took for granted that they could prevail wherever they wished to. Well, we have reached the end of our time together, Howard French. Final words for our listeners before we have to say goodbye. I've just uh, really enjoyed this conversation, Joy. I'm delighted to speak with people who have brought such attention to the book. As I said to you in our prior remarks before we began recording, I'm not an academic historian, meaning that's not my scholarly background. I wrote this book taking academic history very seriously, having read almost, I would say, industrially. But my target really is open-minded people who are curious about the world and who are ready to question or willing to question their prior understandings for things. I trust that many of your listeners fall into that category, and I look forward to reaching more people through such a wonderful conversation. Howard French, thank you so much for joining us today on Forthright Radio and for your many decades of work and for writing this book, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. We very much appreciate it. Joy LeClaire, I thank you. This has been really great. You have just heard a conversation with Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism professor Howard French about his latest book, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War, published by Live Right. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. You'll also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media. This is the last edition of Forthright Radio for 2022. It coincides with the time of the winter solstice, and as I record this for you, it's minus 37 degrees Fahrenheit here in Bozeman, with a high predicted of minus 19 degrees today. I'm grateful that the heat is working in my home, as well as the rest of my infrastructure keeping me comfortable. And I am mindful that there are many in this country and around the world for whom this is not the case. My heart aches for them in this time. So many of us are celebrating the various holidays of this season. Our very best wishes for peace and prosperity for you and yours in the coming year. Be kinder. Thanks for listening and for supporting KZYX and Z. Till next year, this is Joy LaClaire signing out for now. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.